This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please open your Bibles. Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And today we'll be in verses 9 through 11. We'll start reading in verse 8. Just to set the stage for what is a prayer. I believe the Lord wants to encourage us to pray, wants to to help us to pray, teach us to pray, inspire us to pray. I think he especially has in mind those of you who are discouraged in your prayer life. And I want to pray before we look at these verses. Father, We pray in Jesus' name with confidence because of who he is. And my prayer today is that this church would be a church that loves to pray and experiences answered prayer and sees the wisdom of prayer and the gift that prayer is. And I pray you'd use these verses and Paul's prayer for this church to help us, Lord, especially those who are discouraged in their prayer life. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We'll read verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's inspired word, God's inerrant word. It has authority in our lives. It's a gift to us this morning. D.A. Carson said this about this text in his book all about Paul's prayers. Few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us surmount the hurdles of spiritual dryness and lack of faith than the one in Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11 our text today. Few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us. Spiritual dryness, lack of faith. You may have read through this prayer in the past and not come away with that feeling, with that evaluation that Dr. Carson has, with his thoughts. Maybe you've read through these verses quickly and not seen their potential 
their, their potential to accomplish in our soul what he's holding out. You may not even realize that any prayer has that kind of potential. What, what kind of impact do you think prayer can have on our lives? It's, it's easy to read these verses and miss this. It's easy to think prayer in general can't have this kind of effect. I think the Lord wants to encourage us to really grasp the potential that prayer has this morning. If, if you feel like your knowledge of God is small, if you feel like you're just not in a good place spiritually, spiritually, maybe that prayer really hasn't made a difference in your life, that it doesn't seem to have this kind of power and potential, I think today's text is for you. We, we, we have in the back, in the foyer on the way out, a little table. It's got a little book booklet on it that they've put together. It has the prayers of Paul and then a prayer guide by me. And, and I'm nervous about getting equal billing with the Apostle Paul here. Wasn't my idea. And I'm nervous because I did nothing in this prayer guide but steal stuff from other people and put it together. Okay? The good news is it's free and I'm going to dedicate all my royalties to the building fund. How's that? <laughs> But I think it'll help you. It's got all of Paul's prayers from the New Testament in there. If nothing else, I think that is going to help you. We had a, a conference this summer in July called the Life Together Conference. And I taught this material in a seminar. Of the thousands who attended, there was one man, I'm kidding, there weren't thousands. There was one man that I'll never forget, though. It was worth the seminar just to meet him. He came up to share with me how prayer had sustained him through a tragedy in his life. A few years ago on the Lord's Day, his 16-year-old daughter was on her way to join him at their church for their Sunday morning gathering. Apparently, she was a young believer and really the apple of her daddy's eye. He kept referring to her through his tears as his baby. On the way to church that Sunday morning, she was in an accident and was killed. And we can all just imagine how devastating that was. How that affected him. He lost his daughter. He'll never be over that. But he, he wasn't that morning grieving like people who have no hope, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It hit home with me because my daughter was planning to move to California at the time. And I was really struggling with that. And it put it in perspective for me. How, how blessed I was that my daughter was moving to California in many ways. He told me about how difficult it had been for him. So much so that at one point he was feeling overwhelmed. He was at the end of his rope. He just did not think he could keep going. His soul felt like it was being crushed. He needed God's help. And, and one morning he got up and he was just crying out to God, about ready to give up and communicating 
this to the Lord and he said it may sound silly to you but I was I was in traffic and I pulled up behind the truck and I, I can't remember what the name of the company was that owned the truck but there was something about the name of that company that said to him God heard my prayer this morning there was just something specific about it and it he just knew that's the Lord who's brought me to this moment. He named that company. He had me at this traffic light, and it said, I'm with you. You're going to make it. And it, it changed him. It was an answer to prayer. It was powerful. He was in a daily fight to trust the Lord, but he had turned a corner because of prayer. Jesus taught a parable in, in Luke 18 to his disciples so that they would always pray and not lose heart. This man did not lose heart because he prayed. Don't, don't think of prayer as a burden. Don't think of it as some kind of add-on to your Christian life. It's a gift from God. It makes an amazing difference in your life. And I'm especially thinking of those of you who have tried to pray and given up. Don't give up. That man turned a corner he hadn't given up, hadn't given up, and when he came to that seminar on prayer, he came to me with tears in his eyes and says, God's answered my prayers, and I'm here today, and amazingly, he was joyful in giving glory to God. Here's what Dr. Piper says, don't ever come to a point in your life where you cease to pray at all, don't abandon the God of hope and say there's no use praying. Jesus is very jealous, I think this morning, for us to learn this lesson. One of his parables is introduced by the words, and he told them a parable to, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He knew our experience in prayer would tempt us to quit altogether. So he, along with the Apostle Paul, says, never lose heart. Go on praying. The experience of prayer, we need to persevere. That's what Paul is after. Don't cease. Never give up looking to him, to God, for help. Come to him repeatedly. Always pray. Don't lose heart. During the day and often, make your default mental state a Godward longing for all that you need, especially for spiritual desires, especially if you lose a desire to pray. Pray. That's the word of the Lord. It's a tremendous gift, and I think the Lord wants to help us today to be men and women who pray. So let's, let's unpack this, this prayer here in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at three segments of this prayer, kind of. Three segments. Number one, note that Paul prays for what is best. Paul prays for what is best. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound. He loves these people and he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. When, when Paul prays for them, 
What he asks is for constantly increasing love. Remember, there were seeds of division, and he knows love is going to unify that division. It'll either even stamp out seeds of division, and it's going to do much more than this. Verse 10, so that, here's the purpose of this abounding love with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. When, when he prays for their love to abound, love is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. He prays that it will increase so that they can approve what is excellent, what is best. Then they can make wise decisions in their lives. He prays for them to approve excellent things. He wants their love to increase, to, a, to abound, so that they'll be able to discern what is best. And he wants this for the whole church in their daily lives. They're experiencing all these different things. He wants them to abound in love and be discerning so that they can test and approve it. They have to make decisions what is excellent. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If they're going to discern and approve what is best, their love is going to have to abound and they're going to have to have knowledge and all discernment. They're going to need a powerful work of the Spirit of God. I say that because the word translated abound in verse 9 means more than enough of something. It, it means to have leftovers, something abundant. J.B. Lightfoot said it's, it's, Paul is accumulating words here to denote superabundance. That's his prayer. It's a spiritual thing. It's not something we can do in ourselves. It's a love. He wants a love that overflows, that is beyond all need. It's just abundant. It depends on God's answering prayer. You can't do this on your own. It's not a human work. Our efforts can't make this happen. It's God. It's His grace. It's His Spirit. That's what Paul wants to see. Thus, he prays for it. That's what he wants in the lives of the members of the church. And when that happens, they'll be able to discern what is best. The things in life that we have to make choices about, it's not easy to discern this. It's not easy to see what is best. We, we must be abounding in love. To choose what is best, it, it, it also requires a love that isn't ignorant. It's discriminating love. It's constrained love. It's constrained by knowledge and discernment. If you don't have this, then it's, it's just something that's sentimental. It's just an emotion. It's sappy. It's like a Hallmark Christmas movie. These, these aren't throwaway verses. 
The world around us is confused about what love really is. They don't understand what Paul is praying for. So why we have religious pluralism? Why can't we coexist? Have you seen that bumper sticker? You know, the one that says coexist with all the different religious symbols? There's the the crescent moon of Islam, there's a peace sign, there's a gender equality symbol, there's a star of David representing Judaism, there's an eye that represents paganism, a yin-yang representing Taoism, and a cross representing Christianity. You can go to the Peacemonger website and get a Peacemonger coexists interfaith peace symbol sign yin yang color bumper sticker. And and many people when they see these, I mean I've saw them and thought, yeah, that's a nice thought. <laughs> but is it? Many think that it's true. They they think that it means that all religions are pretty much the same. At their core, all all religions lead to God. We should be able to coexist because they're all after the same thing. And and they can feel like, and you've you've heard this, they, they think these religious disagreements, these religious wars are unnecessary. They cause all this conflict and violence. And so really... We should, we should heed the call of this bumper sticker and coexist. It's a call for peace. You know, we, we have the ability to do this. Well, there's a problem. If you know the history, if you know the teachings, if you know the practices of these religions, you can't possibly think that these beliefs are basically the same. They can't all be true. They can't all be valid. If one is true, then the others aren't. You know, people don't care about the details. They don't don't care about what each religion teaches, what they believe, what they confess. (laughs) They're very different. Even many Christians today, are fuzzy on this. They don't, don't, don't really have a full knowledge of biblical doctrine. But listen to this verse from 1 Timothy where Paul writes his co-author to Philippians or co-worker. He writes Timothy and he says, There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that, that constrains what Paul means by love. It, it, it doesn't mean we should not allow freedom of religion. You know, Christians today are all about tolerance <laughs> because we're becoming or are the minority. But 
But the sentiment that says all religions are the same isn't the love that Paul's talking about. It sounds like love, but it lacks knowledge. It lacks knowledge of the truth. It, it lacks knowledge that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It lacks knowledge of the gospel. The love that Paul is praying for is accompanied by, verse 9, knowledge. By this knowledge of the gospel. It's a, it's a mature knowledge, a, a knowledge that grasps the truth of the gospel. People who love like this have been instructed about what the gospel is, and they've experienced the power of the gospel. That's what he's praying for. In, in each of the four epistles that Paul wrote from prison in Rome, when he wrote Philippians, he mentions this knowledge. He prays for this knowledge. He, he would encourage us today. This verse encourages us to pray for abounding love, but with this knowledge. And he prays for a love that is accompanied by all discernment. Literally, all insight. Not total discernment, not total insight, but a discernment that covers everything. It's a gift from God. It can also be developed. We can learn to discern. And Paul prays for this. It means to have the capacity to perceive clearly what is real. To understand the real nature of something. John Kitchen writes, Love and knowledge are not mutually exclusive. A lot of people would think so. You can't have doctrine and love. They, they don't go together well. Love and knowledge are not mutually exclusive, according to the Apostle Paul. Rather, love operates in the sphere of truth. Deep, personal experiential knowledge of God. That's what Paul's praying for as it is applied in the real world issues of our daily relationships and responsibilities. It's discernment. Love without this knowledge is just sentimental. Knowledge without this love is cruel. But when they're together, they are a force in a world that is blind. The world needs this. We're not doing them a disservice when this prayer is answered. Knowledge and dis discernment don't stifle love. They ensure that love is pure, that it's valuable, that it's real. When we have this kind of love and this kind of knowledge and this kind of discernment, the church tests and approves what is best the things that are vital, the things that are really matter, and they choose that. If you don't have this, you won't choose what is excellent. And so many of the decisions we face these days, you, the question isn't simple, is it? It requires this kind of discernment or you'll make a bad decision. There seems to be a lot of poor judgment today. Seems like this prayer is more needful than ever. I remember growing up, back in the 1800s, I used to watch, there, weren't much, there wasn't much to watch back then, but 
there was a few game shows. There was one that I loved. It was called Let's Make a Deal. Not the new one. I, I, I understand there's new let make, Let's Make a Deal. I'm sure I wouldn't like that one. But the one back in the 60s with Monty Hall, I used to watch every day. And people were picked from the, the audience, and they would be a traitor. They would be the one who was going to trade something. They'd make deals. Let's make a deal with Monty Hall. And he would give them something that was nice. But he would tempt them with the opportunity to get something nicer. And you'd have a, a couple doors. And you'd get to choose the door. So he would offer them this choice. They'd have a few minutes to make a decision. And while they're doing that, the crowd is going nuts shouting out what they should do, choose this door, choose that door. You couldn't hear a thing. You couldn't tell what people were saying. The people were scratching their head. The madness of the crowd was influencing them. It was chaos. Then they'd finally make the decision, and the, the memorable moments were always either, you know, a new car, they did well, or what Monty Hall called a zonk. Something worthless. Either way, you were just, oh, you idiot. You threw it all away and got a zonk. Or like, wow, great decision. The decisions that Paul has in mind are, have eternal consequences. When he prays for love abounding, when he prays for knowledge and discernment, Paul has in mind choices that have to be made that have eternal consequences. They matter much more than whether you get a new car or a zonk. They matter for eternity. This prayer is very practical, and we can kind of clarify by, by trying to uh, uh, apply it with some practical examples Think about it. What, what do you do with your time? How many hours a week? You have to make choices about this. How many hours a week do you spend with your kids? Do you take the time to share the gospel with somebody? How much time did you spend this week watching TV or other leisure activities? Are you using your time for what is excellent? That's what this prayer is about. What have you read in the past six months? If you found time for, you know, your favorite internet sites, for news, for sports, for novels, for business journals, have you found time for reading a commentary, another Christian book that would help you understand and know and apply God's Word? Are you committed to reading habits that are best? How are your relationships? Are you investing time to strengthen your relationship? You're making choices about this. Relationships with your friends. Who are your friends? And are you investing time with your spouse, with your kids? What about your prayer time, your reading scripture, your devotions? Or how about how you decide what to do with your money? Do you see yourself as the Lord's steward? Do you... Think of your money as ultimately his. Are you investing your finances in eternal things? You know, the, the point is to make you feel guilty this morning. 
I'm doing a great job. Guilt is not helpful. The point isn't to project guilt. In fact, I thought about not even mentioning these because I don't want you to feel guilty. It doesn't help us choose what is excellent. But if our love abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment, then these are the kinds of choices we're going to be wanting to make and we'll make them well. And that's why Paul prays this. A, a second segment of his prayer is Paul prays, notice, with the, with the big picture in mind, in view. He, he has a big picture. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He prays that those in the church in Philippi will test and approve what is best so that they will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that they will be filled with the fruit of this imputed righteousness that they've received, that we just sang about, this righteousness that's, that's not a righteousness of their own derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He prays they'll be filled with the fruit of that righteousness. One of the dominant themes in Philippians is the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. We saw it again and again in the minor prophets. Verse 6, here in chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, we read about it in Acts 16, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's what's going on in our lives. That's what was going on in their lives. And you can see how the day of Christ is so prominent. It's so important. And it's in Paul's mind. He knows Christ is the one that's, that began a good work in him. He knows he is coming back. And he knows this life is affected when we think about his return. He wanted them to persevere in faith. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even his own ministry is affected by this view that Christ is going to return. For Paul, what is best cannot be discerned without considering Christ's return. If you don't think this is important or prominent, Paul would disagree. Jesus promised he would return in power and glory on this great day, and we should live in light of that day. Tom Nichols is a professor of 
National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. And he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. He cites a survey in which enthusiasm for military intervention in Ukraine was directly proportional to the person's lack of knowledge about Ukraine. Apparently, the more ignorant you are, the more confident you are in your own judgments. He tells the story of someone on Twitter who was trying to do research on sarin gas, a poisonous gas used in war. And apparently, uh, an expert on sarin gas, one of the world's experts, offered to help on Twitter, I guess. And the, the original tweeter, one guy called a twit, proceeded to angrily lecture the expert for acting like a know-it-all. Now, he may not have known it all, but in this case, he knew a lot more than someone who was doing his research by kind of crowdsourcing, you know, his research online. I think when we're talking about chemical warfare, we can all agree we'd like the, the guy with the education, the guy with some expertise. And that's his point, the death of expertise. Finally, Dr. Nichols tells the story of an undergraduate student who's arguing with a renowned astrophysicist who was on campus to give a lecture about missile defense. Obviously, the student didn't agree. After seeing that the, this scientist wasn't going to change his mind, even though this college sophomore had given all these brilliant arguments, the student concluded, well, your guess is as good as mine. And the astrophysicist quickly responded by saying, no, 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 no. My guesses are much, much better than yours. <laughs> and he's right. My point is, is that you may not think the second coming of Christ should affect your daily life. Paul's the expert. He says, that's the view you need to have. That, that should deeply affect your life. As we think about what is best. As we think about approving what is excellent. Finally, the third stage that's so important is the motivation for Paul's prayer. Verse 11, Paul prays for the glory of God. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the goal of his prayer. There can, there can be no mistake that the end of all the praying, the end of all the knowledge, the end of all the discernment is that God would be glorified. Glory is a manifestation of his true nature. We see his glory. It's who God is. And the, the, the goal of this prayer the goal of this text is that 
God's glory would be seen. And praise is when we acknowledge his glory. We, 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 we are praising him today. We just had these wonderful songs praising the Lord. We're acknowledging who he is. We're acknowledging his glory. It's right and good. I loved this morning how we were singing these songs and we were, we were, we were talking about there's none like him. There is only one worthy of our worship. There is only one worthy of our praise. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He alone is worthy of our praise. He's glorious. And our praise acknowledges that. We honor him. We sing his praises. So any pursuit of what is best, what is excellent, that is rooted in selfishness or or self-promotion is worthless. It doesn't have the big picture in mind. There isn't a focus on Christ's return and there isn't a focus on God's glory. That's the purpose of the prayer. Paul wants us to pray for what is excellent, and it's never idolatrous. It never leads to idolatry, to self-worship, self-exaltation. It leads to God's glory. It's, It's bound up. God is bound up prayer and praising him. And he's placed this prayer in his word that we might learn what we should ask him for. I, I've been recently, I've, I've gotten caught up in Formula One racing. I think I've hinted at it a few times and guys are getting on me about it. I get excited about stuff. Don't worry, it doesn't last long. It'll go away. But I've gotten excited about this racing recently. And what sticks out to me, I'm just learning about it. And there's a couple guys in here that know what they're talking about. It helped me. What, what excites me is, is, or what's interesting to me is the dedication that it takes for these drivers. There's only 20 of these drivers in the whole world. It's a worldwide sport, multi-billion dollar sport, and there's 20 drivers. Ten teams, two drivers apiece. And they're racing for a championship individually and for their team. So they have a teammate who they're actually competing with, but they're on the same team as. It is confusing. So half the time, these teammates are trying to kill each other. I mean, literally. I mean, they, they are, well, not literally, literally, but <laughs> they, they wreck each other. They want to win. They are competitive. These guys have been driving cars since they were two, and I am not exaggerating. They have pictures of them in these little cars, and they determine, okay, who is not afraid of anything? That's rule number one. And they find the kid that'll do that, and then they teach him his whole life, and then he comes to this point, and you think he cares who his teammate is? It's dog-eat-dog, and you're driving 200 miles per hour. And if you don't produce 
you lose your seat. There are only 20 seats. And you lose your seat. That's the kind of excellence required for that driving. There's a culture created there that is bizarre. The idea of teammate is destroyed. It's all about me. And I'd submit, I think it has to be. In that culture, that is not the culture that Paul is after, what he's praying for when he thinks choosing what is best, what is excellent. It's almost the polar opposite. It's a miracle. It's a revival that produces this. It's a miracle when love abounds like this. It's a miracle when knowledge increases. It's a miracle when all discernment is given to God's people and they're able to choose in light of eternity and Christ's return what is best. And it's for the glory of God. D.A. Carson says this, Paul is careful. He, he prays for what is best and understands that this best must issue in the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and then carefully adds that all of this is to the glory and praise of God. That's the ultimate test. It is the test of our motivations. And so here we have a prayer that encourages us to find the best and do our best and give our lives for something and then in the end get no glory. But instead, love is really the essence of self-denying. Instead, it's people who are seeking God's purpose. That's why in revival, all the ugliness is gone. It's all for his glory. That's what this prayer is really a prayer for. A prayer for love to abound with knowledge and all discernment is a prayer for reformation, for renewal. This is a prayer for you. This prayer will help you be satisfied in your soul. Amen. Father, we need this prayer to be answered in our midst. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this prayer of the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us to pray. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging us to pray. Lord, I pray for everyone in this auditorium, everyone listening via the live stream. Lord, I pray they'd be encouraged not to lose heart, but to pray. Lord, encourage us. Help us, Lord, as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, Lord. In our daily prayer lives, help us, Lord, to remember 
your encouragement. And may our love abound. And may it include knowledge. And may we have all discernment, Lord, so that we can choose what is best and glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.